We are so excited for our eighth annual gala. It's called Splurge for Emerge, and we want you there. It's October 8th at the Machine Shop in Minneapolis. It's going to be a wonderful night of philanthropy and fun, and we're going to be hearing from women, the women you are empowering. And you know what? We'd love to have this little pocket of time on the podcast to showcase your business. Would you be a sponsor for Splurge for Emerge? Will you continue to show your community how much you care about helping women rise up? I hope you'll be there. Bring seven pals and fill up a table of eight. And would you please consider a sponsorship opportunity to show off how much you care about your community? Contact Becca at EmergeTwinCities.org or just head to our website, EmergeTwinCities.org. And now back to more stories of women who rise up. These are stories of women, mothers, and enterprises filled with grit, gumption, and overcoming. We're in the midst of adversity. We see her rise up. She makes a choice. She chooses to emerge. I'm your host, Becca Erickson. Hey guys, welcome back. We're so glad you're here with us for another week. And this week, we are going to just continue learning about mental health and the ways that the human brain is so adaptable, malleable, and all the ways that we can change our own neurology. But without further ado, I want to introduce you to a Minneapolis mom and teacher, Leah Adair. Hey, Leah. Hi, Becca. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me today. Oh my gosh. I'm just so excited to have you on and also to just have your authenticity and vulnerability to share with us about your own mental health journey. It can sometimes be so overwhelming for people to want to talk about it or hear about it, but I think we have to. And so thank you for being brave. You're welcome. Will you take us, you know, probably 12 to 15 years back and then tell us kind of the whole journey since then? Yes. So I would say that I always have had anxiety like as a back burner, just kind of as this humming thing in my life, but I didn't really know what it was. Throughout my childhood, I just would overanalyze things or apologize for things that were not my fault often um, or take ownership for things that I didn't even need to. Mm. But then five years ago on a particularly stressful week, it was a week of parent-teacher conferences, and my husband and I went to a concert. I don't know what we were thinking during parent-teacher conferences, like after a 15-hour day or whatever. (laughs) We went to a show at First Ave, and then that weekend, we were getting ready to go on a trip to see my grandparents. So it was kind of this perfect storm, which is often the case for people um, with mental health, where it will really spring up. A lot of um, college students, for example, had no major history. Like they maybe had minor anxiety throughout their childhood, like me, where it was manageable. But then something happens where the stress of college or stress of moving away from home or a life event will really spring up and bring it about. Mm. Um, So what basically happened is after the concert, we got home and this thought entered my brain and it was a thought that anyone could have, any single person in the whole entire world could have, but my brain latched onto it and would not let it go pretty much 24-7, and this was November five years ago, and um, I could not sleep, I couldn't eat, I went to work every day, and that was actually my saving grace because it was distracting, Mm. but I also felt like I was 
almost living outside of my body, like in my body, but looking at other people and being very disconnected from it. I didn't know at the time what it was at all. I just was like, what is going on? I didn't know the name for it because I always equated obsessive compulsive disorder with people who were really orderly, which I mean, sometimes let's be honest, I wish that that was the form I had, but it's not. Or people who um, constantly went back and checked doors because that's what media portrays like in um, books or in TV shows, but there's actually several types and subtypes of OCD. And the type that I have is called pure O. And so basically it's mental um, obsessions and mental compulsions. So it's nothing physical. I don't go back and check doors or wash my hands repeatedly or anything like that. My form of OCD had more with um, thoughts that were unwanted. And they're, like I said, thoughts that any person in the whole entire world would have, but my brain got stuck like a hamster wheel and could not shut it off. And then I would ask for reassurance from Google, our worst nightmare. Um, And I mean, we've all checked Google when we're like, oh, my throat hurts. And then all of a sudden we're like, I have throat cancer. Um, But for me, it was like this constant checking of the internet, scouring articles, asking my parents for reassurance, um, just finding all of this stuff out there. And I didn't know a name for it. And finally, I went in for an appointment and they're like, oh, this is a form of obsessive compulsive disorder. And luckily, during my Google search, you know, don't go on the internet if you have OCD and try to find reassurance. But a really beautiful thing happened. I found this blog and we can reference this blog. Her name is Jackie Lee Summers and she lives in the Twin Cities Mm -hmm. and is a major advocate for OCD. And I had no idea she lived here. And she wrote about the therapy that she went through and the form of OCD she had um, was blasphemous thoughts. And so then she told me about exposure response prevention, which is ERP therapy. And it's the the silver lining, I guess, or the best possible therapy you could go through. Talk therapy with OCD is not effective. So ERP therapy is um, exposing you to your fears, your obsessions. And so I went through 15 weeks of that with Dr. Chris Donahue in St. Paul. Mm. And honestly, OCD for me also is just a lifelong thing. Like people have diabetes or people might be in remission from cancer. So often I want to wish it away, but I've had to recognize, Mm. and I've seen this more and more in the last year with having a child, that often I've had to recognize that it's going to relapse, but I have the tools in my toolbox to manage it. For example, if I have a bunch of life stressors, I need to look ahead and be like, okay, how can I manage these stressors? What can I do to take care of myself? Can I go on more walks or talk to my husband or whatever works in that moment? Make sure I'm eating healthy, make sure I'm getting enough sleep because I think my myth was that I thought it would like completely go away after doing these 15 weeks of ERP Mm. therapy Mm. and it's improved by 85 to 90%, which is phenomenal. I mean, I can eat now, I can sleep, I'm able to work and not feel like I'm looking outside of myself in this weird disconnected way, but it still will spring up every now and then. And, um, 
to be okay with that and to accept that. I think it is that radical acceptance of this is my life. This is the card I've been dealt, but I also have a really beautiful life. Yeah. So. Yeah. I agree. And you and I have talked about this before too, just in my own journey, my family has, we've come to a point together where they know they can, they can put some levity on it and tease me a little bit just because yes. in my, this isn't at all about my story, but my huge stressor was becoming a single mom. And so I used to have obsessive thoughts about going through traffic lights and getting hit. And so yes. I would p start having panic attacks about going through, if a light was about to turn yellow, I'd be like, mm -hmm. what if it goes from green to yellow? And then mm -hmm. I had to do this exposure where I would only, instead of going through fast lights, you know, where you're going 55, at least I could go through a slow one. Mm -hmm. And then you know, inch my way towards it, maybe turning yellow, you know what I mean? Right. And then, you know, my family slowly started to learn that they could put some levity around it right. and tease me a little bit because I was getting better. Mm -hmm. Totally. <laughs> the stress of becoming a single mom started to plateau when I learned how to function as a single mom. And, you yes, know, it's yes. like, it's just a, it's a dynamic because at any moment, like you said, it's 85 to 90% okay. But at any moment, some weird thing could just start to like rattle me again. Right. <laughs> right. Have you had new things pop up when you, you know, if you're, if you're 90% there, is it the same old one or is it a new one that comes like true O major? Yes. Um, that's a great question. I think parenting obviously brings on a whole different level where, it in many ways has helped because it's a distraction, just like working is a distraction. And I found that I can like joke around with my husband more about it now, where before they say that it takes 17 to 20 years for people to actually get help with OCD because oh. they either don't know what it is or there's the shame and the stigma surrounding it. And now I just kind of talk about it candidly and sometimes I'll joke about it where there was this point when Judah, who is our son, who's almost two, was a newborn and I all of a sudden went online and was like researching all of these safe sleep sacks and Tom, my husband, was like, uh, you know, he just said something really funny in that moment and it made me recognize, okay, this is ridiculous. I've gone down a big rabbit hole my son's going to be fine. And every new mom has these moments where they're like, are they breathing okay? Did they roll over in their sleep? Whatever. But this, like I said, I went to the internet and went down a deep, dark hole. And so he's learned to, um, how to respond or how to find humor in it. And that's yes. a beautiful thing. So. Same, same. And yes. isn't it ironic that the internet almost becomes, it plays off of, you know, that, that sort of compulsive behavior to keep researching and keep and go further and further and further. And it's like, wow, you've now just gone so far that mm -hmm. you're just feeding into the anxiety itself. Yes. Part of me wonders, I'm like, okay, if this would have like sprung up, if I lived in the 1950s, I'm like, would it just naturally be fine? Because you're always exposed because you don't have Google. <laughs> I don't Maybe you would become like the town... Uh, librarian researcher or yes. the town like the person that talks to every other mom and yes. you're like wow she's like that nervous Nelly right. totally yeah I agree my husband kind of does this you know I used to have this major compulsion to clean the floor all the time and like probably five Christmases ago I did it with like the whole family like the entire extended family at Christmas and Ryan my husband looks at me and he's like 
why are you cleaning the floor right now? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, oh my gosh, uh-huh. what am I doing? My anxiety is I'm I'm being socially inappropriate. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's good to have our friends and family call us out sometimes, you know. So. Right. Sometimes it kind of backfires, but sometimes it's really right. Good. Right. Healthy balance. Are there other people around you besides Tom who are safe enough to you or know enough about it that they kind of keep you back from hitting one of those bad? Bad times again? Um, yes, I have wonderful friends. I have like three girlfriends who were in a text thread and we do Marco Polo and they are fabulous. And then my sister-in-laws are as well. So I feel very sure. fortunate in that area. And a really great thing is I'm on the OCD Twin Cities board and they're wonderful. Um, and all of the people on the board are therapists or people just in the OCD community and have also dealt with the disorder and lastly something really cool is a care 11 anchor brian pyatt has come out saying um that he has suffered with ocd for quite some time and he's been this major advocate and it's been so cool to see somebody in the twin cities that's a prominent figure be a Mm. voice and that's really helped um break that stigma down and make it more comfortable to talk about Yeah, no kidding. What do you think someone would do who maybe doesn't have your network or has not taken kind of the gumption to get on boards, meet people, and they just are still stuck at that totally isolated place? That's a really great question. I think the first thing to do is to just acknowledge you are not alone. It can feel so isolating. Any kind of mental health condition can feel so isolating just because of the stigma. I'll be honest, I have OCD and I still stigmatize mental illness. I mean, you know, I mean, it's true. So I think the first thing is to remember you're not alone and how common it is. It's one in four people. So if you're going to sit in a room of 100 people, chances are 25 of those people have some kind of mental health condition. That's a lot of people. And so I think then after admitting you're not alone, um, finding some books. There's so many good books out there for OCD, um, really well-written, really well-researched books. And then the ERP therapy, like I said, I'm also on a Facebook group called Friends with OCD. And um, a lot of people who speak at the OCD conference, which was just in Austin, Texas this year, um, they're on that forum. And it's super helpful and just really affirming and the people on it that moderate the group are really respectful Mm. and help make sure it's a safe space for people. And then I would say another good thing is finding out wherever you live, whether it's in the United States or somewhere else in the world, some different resources locally, like the OCD Twin Cities group. I mean, we always have a awareness week in October, which is the national awareness week, but we have like an event where this year there was an art therapist who came and then there's a walk throughout the year and there's um, different book clubs and support groups, usually in your local area. And my heart also is for people who don't have access, whether that be um, poverty or race and stigmas behind race and getting help for 
mental health or if you live in a rural area, but there are ways to do online ERP as well. Because I think so often when you live in a tiny community and there's not therapist around, or I've had the experience personally of calling, I've only been to a psychiatrist twice because I get my meds managed through a clinic, um, but I've had the experience of calling for an appointment. They're like, we don't have openings for four more months. And I'm like, well, that's awesome. So I think really trying to keep asking more questions and being like, this is something I need. Do you have somebody else that you can refer me to? Or like I said, if you live in a rural area, um, there's online help too. Sure. sure. And it's not Google. <laughs> it's not WebMD. No. <laughs> Thank you so much for all those resources and ideas. You know, I hope just even one of those things helps someone realize like, okay, I should find that book or I should find that group as a first step. But will you take us now just to your bottom day where you were really either eyeball to eyeball with your OCD or just in the thick of it, not having a name for it yet, trying to understand what was different about you. And where was that rock bottom moment for you? And what was left for you? Why would you even get up the next day? I would say it wasn't a day. I mean, I can think of a day, but it was like four months, which sounds terrible, but it's true. But I I guess if I were going to pinpoint a day, it was when it first kind of begun and we were traveling to South Dakota. We were with my grandma. She was 85 and we were with my brand new niece who was two weeks old. And, you know, I was with my husband and family and it was this moment this time that should have been really precious and beautiful but like I literally couldn't swallow my food I was waking up like I don't know 10 to 12 times a night or I'd wake up and I didn't even know if I slept or not Mm. Um, and I just felt like I was going through the motions and it was so terrible where I was like this is never going to end this is my life Mm. from here on out and I honestly would like imagine like I just was like, I, I wasn't suicidal, but I was just like, oh my gosh, there has to be an end in sight, but where is it? And I think what gave me hope was my students when I taught, um, just because they're beautiful and young and innocent. And I think also that my husband is the calmest person I know. And so just having this level person to come home to every day and this safe person, I think was really, really helpful. Another thing, one other thing that helped is I tried to really immerse myself in working out in a healthy way because I had just read that that was really beneficial you know, mm-hmm. to get those endorphins going. And so, yeah, Amazing. it was like four months that were just terrible. And Right. And in those four months, I'm sure you weren't really incorporating kind of your three hope and help things, but maybe one at a time, you kind of added them in until you got back to a level, healthy place for yourself. Yes. Yes. Mm. I mean, I look back on that sometimes when things start to ramp up a little bit now and I'm like, wait a minute, this is not bad. Like (laughs) this is manageable. That's when I felt like my life was ending. (laughs) I know. Yeah. Thank you for your brave voice, Leah, and for all the ways that you're just kind of encouraging for all of us to have a better awareness of mental health, more compassion for people when we have no idea what anyone else is going through, even situationally what anyone else's life is about right now. And just, you know, some encouragement for people to reach out and learn more about what might be going on inside of them. Thank you for your story. Thanks for your time. 
Thank you. Thanks, Leah. The Two Emerge podcast is brought to you by Emerge Mothers Academy. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a positive review. A special thanks to our media manager, Laurel Goulson, and to Jessica Manning for our music. 